Today we are going to consider Acts chapter 26. If you would stand as I read this, this chapter, be reading Acts 26. This is Paul's defense before a king named Agrippa. Acts 26, verse 1. <clears throat> so Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun. It shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the, Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from, from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins a place among, and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I am not disobedient. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Galilees that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what, what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that, by being the first to rise from the dead, 
he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, and when they had all withdrawn, when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is God's word. You can be seated. At the end of Acts 25, the Roman governor of Judea, his name was uh, Festus, he was in a very awkward position. On the one hand, Paul had appealed to Caesar, so he had to send Paul to Rome. But on the other hand, he was convinced that Paul was innocent. And so it would have been rather humiliating to write to Caesar and say, I'm sending you this guy, Paul, he's innocent, but here he is. And so he wanted to consult with somebody who might help him know what to write. So he called King Agrippa, and they were there. He heard Agrippa wanted Agrippa to hear his case, and together they would form a response. In chapter 26, which I just read, records Paul's defense before Agrippa. And you may have noticed a theme that runs throughout this passage, namely the hope of the resurrection. The hope of the resurrection. And as you may be aware, in the Bible, a hope is not merely a wish, but a hope is a confident expectation. And so if you hope in something, you're confident about it. You have this this anticipation, this expectation that it will happen. And so the hope of the resurrection is this confident expectation that just as Christ was raised from the dead, bodily from the dead, those who are in Christ will also be raised bodily from the dead. And this is a wild truth. It's, it's something that's beyond our, our experience. It's beyond our perception. But it's something that's taught clearly in, in Scripture. If you put your faith in Christ, here on earth you are raised spiritually. You're raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And when Christ returns, you will be raised bodily with a body that's akin to the resurrected body of Christ. And so the implication here is that our salvation in Christ is so comprehensive that it will extend to every part of our being. One day it will extend even to our bodies. And so today we're going to see three three truths that we see in this passage about this hope, this confident expectation of the resurrection. Before we talk about it, though, I want to acknowledge that we're probably in a number of different places when it comes to the hope of the resurrection. I mean, some of you are 
genuine bona fide disciples of Jesus. You believe Jesus died on the cross, pay for your sin. You believe he was raised from the dead and exalted at the right hand of the Father. And you are following hard after him in this life. I hope that this passage deepens your appreciation, this hope of the resurrection that you already have experienced. If you're here today and you've never come to faith in Christ, maybe you've gone to church your entire life and you've heard the words, but you have to admit, you know, I don't really have this expectation. I know the words, but it doesn't really mean anything to me. I wanna encourage you to do something that you may, it may sound like it's, you're gonna have to take a risk but it's really a risk that's worth taking. I wanna encourage you to be curious about what we're talking about. I want to encourage you to be open to the possibility that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is a reality and it's a tangible expression of God's love for you. It's a tangible expression that God wants a relationship with you. And if you really feel risky, uh, breathe a prayer to God and say, God, if this is true, if this Show me that it's true, because if it's true, I don't want to miss it, okay? So we're going to talk about the hope of the resurrection, three things. First of all, the hope of the resurrection is an ancient biblical hope. And so this is not some new idea that Jesus first formulated or that Paul made up or that Peter made up. No, the, the hope of the resurrection is an ancient biblical hope. And this matters because if something is both ancient and it's rooted in the Hebrew Scriptures, then it has credibility. If something is new or novel, then it's suspect. But if it's ancient and it's biblical, then it's worth paying attention to. And that's the case with the hope of the resurrection. As we read, Paul recounts to, to uh, King Agrippa, he says, I'm fortunate that I'm presenting my case to you because in contrast to Festus, who's clueless about these things, you understand the customs and the controversies of the Jews. And that's because uh, King Agrippa was actually Jewish. He was a, Ro he was a king appointed by the Romans, but, but he was Jewish. And so Paul said, I'm glad I'm talking to you because you're gonna be tr able to track with the argument that I'm making. And we'll, we'll, we'll uh, be skipping around quite a bit today. But down in verses 6 through 8, we read this. And now, Paul said, Now here I stand on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12, 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. So there's no doubt that he's talking about a hope, right? He said it three times in this verse. And he actually says, the, the things that I am accused of believing, my accusers should believe. They're Jews, they know this. These are the, this is the hope that God promised to Israel. And so he asks in verse eight, why is it thought incredible? Why is it not credible, thought not credible by any of you that God raises the dead? If the resurrection from the dead was at the heart of the promise that God made to Israel, why does anybody think this is unbelievable? Why do you think that the being raised bodily from the dead is a strange concept? Look down at verses 22 and 23. Later in his defense, Paul says, makes the same claim, the same argument. He says, to this day, I've had the help that comes from God. 
And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, pass, namely, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And so when, again, when he says, when I'm talking about the hope of the resurrection, I have scripture on my side. I'm not saying anything except what the law and the prophets said would come to pass. And that was and is a compelling argument. And so now you may wonder, where in the Old Testament do we see this hope of the resurrection? Where do we find it in the law and the prophets? Well, let me just give a couple of examples. You could look at others. You could look at Hosea 6, verses 1 and 2. Uh, you could look at Ezekiel 37, this, this uh, famous vision, a valley of dry bones that miraculously come back to life. <clears throat> but I want to just give a couple examples to establish that the bodily resurrection was a hope rooted in the ancient texts of the Hebrew Bible. Daniel 12, verses 2 and 3 reads this. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And then Isaiah 25, 19. Have I got that reference right? It's 26, 19. <clears throat> your dead shall live, your bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. And so the concept of being raised bodily from the dead, it's peppered throughout the, the, the Hebrew Bible. And when Christ appeared to his disciples, you may remember in, in Luke 24, it says that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. I mean, they knew the scriptures, the, the content, but he opened their mind to understand the scriptures and he showed them that it was written that Christ must die and must be raised from the dead. And it's argued elsewhere that he had to die for the sins of the people. He had to be pierced through for their transgressions. And then he had to rise from the dead because he's going to sit on the throne of David forever. You don't have a dead king sitting on the throne. He is, he is risen from the dead. And so uh, the hope of the resurrection is an ancient and biblical hope. Now, this doesn't prove that Jesus was raised from the dead. There's, there's tons of historical evidence that point to the, the validity of the resurrection. But that it's an ancient biblical hope, it does give context and credibility to the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul and the other New Testament authors argue in many different places that Jesus fulfills everything uh, that was said about the Messiah in the Old Testament. And so I would say this is reason number 57 why we should study the Old Testament, okay? There are many different reasons, and one of them is because it points us to Christ and it gives us a deeper understanding of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so we study the scriptures because it's profitable. It's, it's God-breathed, and therefore it's profitable. You may remember in, in Acts 17, when Paul went to Berea, he told them that the Christ must suffer and must be raised from the dead. 
And you remember what Luke said the Bereans did? So they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why? Because they studied the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They weren't just taking Paul's word for it. Where is it written? And because they found it written there, Luke says that many of them believed. So again, I would just commend to you, don't read the Bible because you're supposed to read the Bible because it is like nothing else. It's God-breathed and therefore profitable. And this is one of the ways you will find it profitable. It will, it will fuel your hope in the resurrection. Well, second, the hope of the resurrection <clears throat> is a transforming reality. So first of all, it's a reality. What we're talking about is actually true. It's not make-believe, and it's a transforming reality. If you experience this, it will change your life. The reason I feel compelled to say this is because I, I've talked to people in the past who use Bible terms and biblical language, but they would readily admit, I'm not saying that they would really admit that they don't really believe there's any reality behind those words. One person in, in particular explicitly told me, he said, uh, whether or not Jesus was literally raised bodily from the dead is beside the point. The resurrection is all about new beginnings. It's the imagery of life after death and second chances. That's not what Luke is describing, and that is not what Paul experienced. It was a reality that transformed him. Beginning in... Uh, verse 4 I think but Paul is recounting his own yeah his own story and he says I was raised Jewish I became a Pharisee that was the strictest party in Judaism and uh, eventually I, I began persecuting followers of Christ I would hunt them down I would arrest them and whenever I got the chance I voted for their execution I tried to get them to blaspheme to renounce their loyalty to Jesus I did it in Jerusalem then beginning in verse 12, he describes what happened on the way to Damascus. He, and, and he says that we was on the way with these other, other people to persecute the Christians there. And he saw a light that was brighter than the sun. Okay? And you wonder, okay, what, what light shines brighter than the sun? Maybe a better question is, who shines brighter than the sun? Well, we read this in verse 14. And when we had all fallen to the ground, this light knocked them to the ground. He <clears throat> says, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language or dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He didn't say, why are you persecuting my people? To persecute his people, he is so, Jesus is so identified with his people that to persecute them is to persecute him. Later, the, the, the church would be described as the body of Christ. What you do to somebody's body, you do to them. So Jesus asks, why, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. And a goad isn't a word that I use, but a goad is a stick that you would use to prod an animal to make it go the direction you want. And if the animal kicked back, if it resisted, you would have to apply more force to make it go where you want. 
And so Paul is, uh, this voice is saying to Paul, you don't want to be resisting the will of God. That is a fight that you're going you to lose. And so in verse 15, Paul says, I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And at that moment, when he got that answer, Paul knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God raises the dead. So again, get, understand what was happening. This light, brighter than the sun, knocked them to the ground. Paul hears a voice speaking his name in his own language. He asks him, who are you? And the answer that comes back is Jesus. That's a voice, that's an answer that you believe. He knew that Jesus had been raised from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus was a reality. <clears throat> and that reality transformed Paul. He went from being a person who wanted to kill Christians to a person who was willing to die as a Christian. Verse 16, Jesus, Jesus says, but rise and stand upon your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. And then in verse 18, notice how, how Jesus describes the salvation that people would experience, the people to whom Paul was sent when they heard this message about Jesus. He says, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are, who are sanctified by faith in me. So he talks about opening and turning and receiving. He says, I'm sending you so that God might open blind eyes. And, and uh, we're not told it here, but in Acts, Acts uh, 9, Paul was blinded when he saw this light. He was blind for three days, and so his physical blindness mirrored his spiritual blindness. Paul was 100% blind about who Jesus was and what he had done. Three days later, when he regained his sight, when his eyes were opened, that mirrored his spiritual sight. He never was. And that's what, what the gospel still does. It opens blind eyes. That's what happened. 40 years ago. I grew up hearing about Jesus. I knew the words, but I never saw it. When God opened my eyes, I'm like, ah, oh, okay. This is a reality. Jesus is a risen person. He is my Savior. And that's what Jesus wants to do in each of our lives. So first is opening. The second is turning. When your eyes are opened, you turn. You turn from uh, darkness to light. You turn from Satan to God. It's called repentance. You're turning from your sin, from yourself, from Satan, back to God in faith. You have a, a whole different orientation of your life. So opening, turning, and then receiving. You receive from God, first of all, forgiveness of sins. And when God forgives you, there's this crushing debt that we all feel, the guilt and the shame of, of, of this accumulated things that we've done and thought and wanted to do but didn't have the opportunity. All of these things, this debt is just forgiven. It's, 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 it disappears. 
Nothing is owed because Jesus paid for your sin on the cross. And so you receive forgiveness. And Paul says, or Jesus says, you also receive a place among those who are, are set apart through faith in him. And so you have, a, you have a home where you belong. You now are a full member of the body of Christ. There, there's, no, there's no rank, no order. The ground is level before the cross. And so Paul's experience made clear that, that the hope of the resurrection is a transforming reality that involves opening and turning and receiving. And I want you to think with me for just a, a couple minutes about um, this, this description of what happens to people who experience the, the hope of the resurrection. And I think you'd agree with me that if this is what Jesus is promising would happen to people, then this is something that we should expect, we should invite, we should want. And so I want, to, I want you to think about this. Are you willing to let God open your eyes? And again, if you've never said yes to Jesus, you've never come to the place where you bowed the knee to him, are you willing to let God open your eyes? This is, this is something he wants to do. And so uh, again, this is something you don't want to miss. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, you don't want to miss it. And so cry out to God and say, God, would you open my eyes? I, I hear people talking about it. I see people, they're on a first name basis with Jesus and they love him. I don't get it. Would you open my eyes? And once he does, then you, you turn, not as a punishment, but as a gift. You can turn from everything that's weighed you down and everything that is, has poisoned your soul then you receive grace, you see forgiveness, you see, receive a place in God's family. And so that's something that happens at conversion. If you're already a disciple, I would just ask you, I would just encourage you, this pattern of opening and turning and receiving, that's a pattern that we continue throughout the Christian life. When was the last time you, you came to God and you said, God, would you open my eyes? God, what are my blind spots? which by definition you can't see because they're blind spots. Do you go through life just assuming I'm all, everything's good with me and God, there's nothing he wants to mend, there's nothing from which he wants me to turn? Or do you, you invite God, God, open my eyes. I know I need to see things. There are ways that I think, there are ways that I speak, there are things that I do from which I need to turn. And so you, you pray, God, will you show me these hurtful things in me? And by your grace, I will turn from them. And then you can receive this fresh experience of forgiveness. You can, you can have this deepening understanding of your place in the family of God. <clears throat> well, third, the hope of the resurrection is good news for everybody. These verses make clear that Paul believed it was, it was for everybody, the small, the great, Jews, Gentiles, kings, and everybody else. We need to understand that the hope of the resurrection is for every single one of us and for every single person that we know, okay? Let's pick up the narrative down in verse 22. <clears throat> Paul kind of shows his hand when he tells King Agrippa, I'm standing here before you testifying. He says, so he's not only giving a defense, he's also bearing witness 
This is what disciples do. He's bearing witness about Jesus. Verse 22, to this day I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great. And so he says, I'm testifying to everybody, to those that are small, those that are great. And you may be here today and you think that you're very small in the sense that I'm not worthy of this. I'm not worthy of the forgiveness. I'm not worthy of a place in God's family. And so I don't want to presume upon the grace of God. No, this is for you. This hope of the resurrection is for you. And you may be here today and you're thinking, well, actually, I'm pretty great. I'm kind of a big deal when you stop and and think about it. And you may think that it's beneath you to all this talk of bowing the knee to Jesus and submitting to the lordship of Jesus. Now, this, this is absolutely for you. It was for King Agrippa. It's for you. Come to verse 23. He says, saying, Nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, in other words, there are more resurrections coming. He's the first fruits. He would proclaim light both to our people, to Jews, and to the Gentiles. And so all who, who, uh, who hear this message are candidates for the hope of the resurrection. And at this point, Festus interrupts Paul, much the way a, a judge might interrupt an attorney who's trying to introduce inadmissible evidence or who's being argumentative or who's leading the witness. And uh, this is what he says, verse 24. And his, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Some of you are in school and you're like, my learning is driving me out of my mind. I've studied so much that I'm dumb, you know. And that's what, that's what it seemed like to Festus. He was the Romans and the Greeks. They believed in the immortality of the soul. They believe the soul would live forever. But a body, having a body that's raised immortal, that's just foolishness to them. So they said, Paul, all your, all your learning has driven you mad. You're, you're out of your mind. And, and Paul's response is just priceless. 25, but Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about all these things. Now he's talking to... Uh, Agrippa, who is Jewish. He knows all these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Now, the things he's talking about, they were public knowledge. They, people knew this. And now he turns from Festus to Agrippa, again, who is Jewish, <clears throat> and he asks a rather bold question and makes a very bold statement. Verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? So he was taken aback. He's like, wait a minute, I'm the king here sitting, listening to your defense. Are you actually in a short period of time trying to persuade me to be a Christian? I don't know if you've ever been in a conversation like that. It's like, Paul's Paul's response was, Yes, exactly, you and everybody else, verse 29. And Paul said, whether short or long, we can take as long as you want, Agrippa, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. I don't want you to experience 
the, the bondage that I'm experiencing, but I do want you to be a slave of Christ. And so Paul says, yeah, Agrippa, this is for everybody, the small, the great, it's for kings, it's for Jews, it's for Gentiles, it's for misfits, it's for you, it's for me. This, this, this hope of the resurrection is for everybody. And you get down to verse 32 and just the account ends with yet another statement of Paul's innocence. And, and Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And so we don't know what, what they wrote to Caesar when they sent Paul off to appeal to him. Agrippa was no help. But the hope of the resurrection is good news for everybody. Since every person is sinful by nature and by choice, every single one of us needs a savior. But since every single person is created in the image of God, you are valuable. God wants to redeem you. And so if you will let him open your eyes, if you turn, if you receive, you can experience the hope of the resurrection. So if you've never done that, I trust you won't put this on the back burner. This is a front burner issue. If you've already received this hope of the resurrection, think of the implications for everybody you know. As I think about this, I think in my, in my human thinking, I have, I have people in mind, people I love dearly, I would, do almost, I would do anything to see them come to Christ, friends and family members. But when I'm thinking in my own, my own mind, I'm thinking, it's not going to happen. That's just so unlikely. I've heard the pronouncements they've made, the stands they've taken, how their identity is wrapped up in something that is so opposed to the gospel. And I think, yeah, this, this is not for them. But I read this, and I think, no, the mind of Christ is that this hope of the resurrection is for everybody. And it raises my, my faith, and it makes me want to pray it makes me want to share and be, be transparent about who I am and what I believe. This is the will of God that we, we believe that this is for everybody, that we live our lives and we speak as if this hope is for everybody. Because it is. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would... would uh, allow us to soak in everything that, that we've seen in this passage today. We thank you, God, that this hope of the resurrection is a reality, and it's just rock solid from the Hebrew Scriptures throughout the New Testament. We pray, God, you would open our eyes, that you would give us a will to turn, 